Father, we thank you. We praise you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come near to us in Jesus and that you have spoken to us in your word. And we ask now, God, that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we pray that in attending to your voice that you might mold and shape us into your image and that you might draw us closer to yourself for our hearts are desperately in need of you, O God. So come and meet us here in your word. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So if you are joining us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last couple months that we're actually gonna end today. Uh, Next week, we're gonna begin a new series in the book of Colossians. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But today we're ending our series called Centered in the Chaos. And we have been talking about how to center our own hearts and root our lives in God and find a center in the midst of the very turbulent and chaotic times that we find ourselves in. And as we come to the conclusion of our series today, we're going to see in Psalm 73 really what is at the center, kind of like the thing, the fundamental prime thing that's, that's important for us if we're going to center our lives in God. And what the psalmist teaches us here is that, is that if we are going to find our center in God, then we need to be people who seek and pursue God. You know, there's a sense in which the psalmist breaks into our lives that are oftentimes numb and bored and distracted. Uh, those of us who are, find ourselves kind of absorbed in screens and uh, constantly reading the incessant news feeds and just kind of being numbed by our overeating and overentertainment and all of that, he breaks in and he says, look, wake up, you need God. And he teaches us here to thirst for God and to hunger for God and to pursue God and to seek God. And I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded of when I was younger, uh, I used to go surfing oftentimes after school. And so school would get down around three o'clock and my brother and my friends and I, we'd go down to the beach and we would surf. And then typically we'd get out of the water around five or six. And then we would be oftentimes very, very hungry, you know, because we were teenage boys, we were growing, we had just exercised. And so we'd be voraciously hungry. And on our way home, oftentimes we would stop at someplace like AMPM Mini Market. And, you know, they would have these uh, two hot dogs for 99 cents. And actually, it wasn't two hot dogs. It was two chili cheese dogs. And I don't know if you remember this, but you'd walk over there to the glass case. Some of you, this isn't a past memory. Uh, sadly, it might be a recent memory. But you go over to that, that plastic case, and there are these hot dogs that have been sitting underneath a heat lamp for about eight hours. And then you take one of those babies off and stick it in the crusty uh, a bun, and then you'd go over to the squeeze thing and you'd squeeze over the top of it chili and then squeeze over the top of that cheese. And I'd eat a couple of those and maybe some chili cheese Fritos or something like that and a big old like 32 ounce thing of Pepsi. And after I was done, I would just feel sick. And what happened more than once is I would get home and I'd walk into the house and my parents had prepared a delicious meal. Maybe it was sirloin steak, perfectly grilled by my dad with some crispy potatoes and maybe a Caesar salad or something like that. But I had lost my appetite because I had satiated my deep hunger with with that which was not real food. And so when real food came before me, I really had no appetite for it. And I was thinking that very much that's how many of us are today. We have satiated a deep 
hunger, a deep longing that we have for God on that which is less than God, on things that are less than satisfying. And many of us find ourselves dull and numb and bored because we, we have satiated our spiritual appetite with that which will ultimately never satisfy our appetite. And so we have, we have ceased seeking and pursuing God. But here in the text today, the psalmist exhorts us, he challenges us, he invites us into a pursuit of God. And so this morning, I want us to explore what it looks like from this psalm to really engage in a pursuit of the true and living God. And we're gonna see three things this morning from the psalm. Number one, we're gonna see where it begins. Second, we're gonna see what this pursuit involves And then we're gonna see where the final end of this pursuit is, how it's ultimately quenched. And so let's uh, tick through these. Number one, let's talk about where this pursuit of God begins. It begins, number one, when we recognize our spiritual thirst. And look at how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 63, verse one. He says this, "'Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And then he says this, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says, God, my soul is thirsty. He says, God, my flesh is longing. And it's interesting because if you look just at the very heading of this Psalm, it clarifies that this is a Psalm of David, it says, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so he gives us a context of these words. Uh, David had been king over Israel when he was betrayed by his very own son who usurped his kingdom. David was chased out into the wilderness and he spent some of his latter years with his life under threat being pursued by the armies of his own son, of his own son Absalom. And it's here in the wilderness when his life is under threat, where he's experienced this deep relational and emotional brokenness and pain from a son who has betrayed him, when he has lost his kingdom, when he's lost all of his creaturely comforts of uh, living in the palace, that David out in the wilderness says, I am thirsting and I'm longing. But it's interesting, note well what he is thirsting and longing for. You know, he might say, I'm thirsty and I'm longing for some shelter. I'm thirsty and I'm longing for relational healing with my son. I'm thirsty and I'm longing for for maybe some good food. Uh, but, But notice what he says. He doesn't say any of that. He Instead, he says, I'm thirsty and longing with this deep ache in my soul for God. And I think what David is saying, is he saying, look, it's not that I don't thirst and long for relational healing or for comfort or for security. It's just that below all of that lies a more base, a more, a more basic, a more fundamental thirst in my soul. And that is a thirst for God. You know, David was not the first or the last wise, sage, spiritual leader to note that deep within the soul, that deep within our human heart is is a fundamental longing, a thirst for God. There is this spiritual thirst that all humanity lives with. You know, Jesus spoke about this thirst 
in, in an encounter that he had with a woman at the well of Samaria. And many of you will know this story. Uh, Jesus walks up to this well and there's this woman there who's had five broken, failed marriages. This is a woman who had been relationally thirsty. And she turns out she's also physically thirsty. So she goes to the well and she starts getting her water. And Jesus walks up to her and he says this. He says, if you drink from this well, you will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never thirst again. It's as if Jesus says to this woman, look, underneath your physical thirst and, and below even your relational thirst, your thirst for love lies a more fundamental and basic thirst. You have a thirst for God. You know, the fourth century African bishop, St. Augustine spoke of the same thirst, but he used different language. Instead, he referred to a restlessness in the soul. And in his, uh, in his great uh, autobiographical kind of memoir, Confessions, he puts it like this, speaking to God, he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And it's interesting because throughout his memoir, Augustine is talking about how he sought to, to satiate and to quench kind of his, his restless heart with relationships and with love, and then with uh, academic achievements, and then with professional success as a philosopher. But each time it left his heart restless, he says, until ultimately his heart found rest in God. You know, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal spoke of the same thing, but he also used a little bit different language. Instead of speaking of thirst or a restless heart, he spoke of a deep craving that exists within the human soul. And he said this, and, and it's important to note that Blaise Pascal was a man of science, as many of you will know. Uh, he believed in the scientific method. He believed that there was incredible value and great truth to be gained when we put things underneath the microscope and we observed the physical material universe around us. But he was also astute enough to realize that not every part of humanity could be put underneath a microscope. There was a deep craving within the human soul. And he spoke of it like this. He says, there is this craving that humanity tries to fill with everything around him. Though none can help since this infinite abyss can only be filled in God himself. You know, it was uh, a few hundred years later that the British author and literary critic C.S. Lewis spoke of something similar, but he didn't talk about a thirst or a restlessness or, or a craving. Instead, what C.S. Lewis noted was an inconsolable desire that exists deep within the heart. And he said this, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And what Lewis is noting there is, is, is this idea that the psalmist notes and that Jesus taught and that all so many of the great thinkers throughout the history of the world have taught, and that's that humanity has a deep and fundamental part of us that cannot be ultimately satisfied by anything in this, in this world, it can ultimately and only and finally be satisfied only in God. You know, more recently, the Jewish author, Judith Sholovitz, you know, uh, she wrote a book on the Sabbath and I was listening to an interview with her a while back. And it was interesting because she also noted the same thing, but again, she doesn't talk about a, a thirst or a restlessness or a craving or an inconsolable desire. Instead, what she called this was an unassuageable longing 
for embrace. She says, deep within me is this unassuageable longing. And listen, I, I think that those of us who inhabit our modern, our modern secular age need to pay close attention to what these wise spiritual leaders, what David and what Jesus taught us. There is a part of you, there's a part of me that can ultimately only be satiated and satisfied in God. You know, the sociologist Christian Smith uh, from Notre Dame said that in our modern secular age, we suffer from what he calls, quote, a mystery deficit, an inability to even conceive of unknowns and realities beyond those accessible to our rational understanding. And the philosopher Charles Taylor, interestingly, spoke about the same idea by saying that, look, um, he said, our secular age is marked by excarnation. And he's using that as an inverse of the great mystery in the church, which is the incarnation, where the transcendent and the eternal and the infinite God comes into our finite material physical universe and he enters into the imminent domain of human existence. But he says, in the modern secular age, we have suffered from excarnation. We have excised out of the world all mystery and all transcendence and, and all infinitude. And he says, and humanity is suffering that deficit. And over against these, you know, the, 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 the great teachers, the great leader says, look, there is deep within you something that all of our technology and all of our incessant shopping and entertainment and all of our creaturely comforts and experiences and achievements cannot satiate. And that's a deep longing for God. I remember the first time this kind of was brought home to me it was when I was younger and I was watching this surf movie. And uh, in the surf movie, there was an interview with an old California surfer named Joey Baran. And he was a professional surfer. And he was the best surfer at that time that California had ever produced back in the early 80s. Uh, it was before uh, the greatest surfer that California produced, which was Tom Curran. Uh, but before him was Joey Baran. And Joey Baran was the first person from California to win the most prestigious event on the World Surfing Tour, which was the Pipeline Masters. And Brand in this interview talked about how he'd always dreamed of winning the pipe. He had kind of like fixed his imagination on it. And he thought, man, this, if I could win, it would be the thing, it would be like it, you know? And he dreamt and he worked for this. And he finally, he, he, he won the pipe masters. And he said, he remembered sitting on the podium, I mean, on the, on the stage before all these crowds. And uh, he held up, you know, the trophy and he said, I won the pipe, I won the pipe. And then he said, uh, they, they took the trophy away from him because Nobody actually gets to keep the Pipeline Masters trophy. And then he said this, this rain squall came in in Hawaii and everyone just left the beach because he said nobody hangs out in the midst of a rain squall in Hawaii. And he said in, in just a few minutes, he says the crowds were gone, the joy was gone, the trophy was gone. And he said what was left was this deep aching hole in my heart that that which I had always dreamt of getting could never ultimately satisfy. And that left him, that, that led him ultimately to God. But listen, I just wonder whether or not you in this modern secular age has actually kind of lost something of this 
sense of, of, of a deep spiritual longing that you are made with. You were made for God. So David here in this text recognizes that although I, I, I do long, I desire for family reconciliation and I desire for comfort and security and safety and a return to the kingdom, that below all of that is a more fundamental longing that can only be met in God. And notice this recognition of his deep spiritual thirst leads secondly to an active pursuit of God to quench the thirst. And notice what this pursuit of God involves. Look at what it says down in verse uh, one again. Look what he says. He says, so I have looked upon you in the, or he says, oh my God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And I want you to notice just in the Psalm, the collection of verbs, these very active, action-oriented verbs that David uses to describe his pursuit of God. Notice he says in verse one, earnestly, I seek you. And then he says in verse two, I have looked for you. And then he says in verse six, I remembered you. And then in verse six, again, I meditated on you. And then in verse eight, I cling to you. And I was thinking about these verbs, seeking and looking for and thinking about and meditating upon and clinging to. And I was thinking like, what is the relationship in my life where I have experienced these kind of verbs? <laughs> and it brought me back to when I was just, you know, 20 years old. And I remember there was this beautiful, intelligent, articulate, godly woman at my church. And I remember seeing her you know, across the way and kind of noticing her. And I remember I would think about her often. And when I would go to church, I would try to maneuver my way, kind of manipulate my way to go and to be able to be next to her, find excuses to go talk to her. And sometimes she would actually come to a Bible study. It was at my house on Thursday nights. And so again, I kind of look for, for ways to talk about her, but I would constantly think about her and, and look for her. And, and then, um, the day came when I decided I was going to ask her out. Now, there was some objection, there was some kind of like obstacles to this because there was a friend of mine who was already dating her. And some of you are not going to think very favorably of me about this, but I did look at her and I thought, there's no ring on that finger. And besides her, the guy who she was dating had moved out of state and, you know, they were young and I didn't know, were they still dating? You know, what's going on there? And I thought this, and then, and then I had some other friends of mine who had talked and I heard this guy telling me that he was kind of interested in her and he was going to ask her out. And I thought, I better act quickly or else I'm going to lose my opportunity. And so one day I called her up and I asked her out if she could go on a date with me. And she said, well, let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you. And as she tells the story. She called her boyfriend and she said, um, Josh just called me and asked me out. And she said, and I'm going to say yes. <laughs> and that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> but then we began going out and our first date was a bit of a disaster because my car broke down and uh, we got stuck in this terrible rainstorm. It was during El Nino season in California. And 
uh, her dad actually had to come and pick us up and he had to help me push my car in the rain. And then after our first date, he dropped me off. He was both soaked and I was both soaked. And even though it was a disaster, I went home that night and I couldn't be happier because I had such an incredible time with this woman. And I just laid in my bed thinking about her and I kept pursuing and kept pursuing and pursuing until finally I asked Alicia to marry me. And she said, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because the language that David uses here in this text is this language of active pursuit, almost as, as a, the pursuit of a lover. And David is pursuing God. He is seeking after God. He's looking for God. He's meditating on God. He's thinking about God. And I was, I was contrasting these very active verbs to how very passive I and you often are in our own life with God. You know, we live in this very consumer-oriented culture where we're so trained to simply look at what something might give to us passively as we sit and are entertained or are marketed to or are, you know, kind of like absorbed in the screens or whatever. But the Christian life, like life with God actually demands something more upon us than that. It demands upon us something like the pursuit of a lover where you're thinking about and you're looking for and you're pursuing and you're clinging to. This is what David is doing in the wilderness. And notice in our text how David goes about pursuing God, kind of like where is it that David seeks after God? And it's interesting in the text because you see that David seeks God both in the sanctuary, in other words, in community and in the liturgy of regular gathered worship with the people of God, but he also seeks God. He also looks for God in the quiet of his own home in the middle of the watches of the night. And notice first he talks about the sanctuary. Look what he says in verse two. He says, so I have looked upon you. Where, where is he looking for God? He says, in the sanctuary. Now, the Hebrew scholars tell us that uh, verbs in Hebrew are very elastic. And so when David says, uh, I looked upon you in the sanctuary, he could be thinking back to his previous memory. He could be looking ahead to the day when he will look upon God again in the sanctuary as he's out kind of in the dark wilderness space. But he says this, whether in the past or whether in the future, where I met God is in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And note well that when David goes into the sanctuary, again, he doesn't go as a passive consumer. He doesn't go as a judge to criticize what's happening there. Did I like the songs? Did I like the sermon? Did I like the seats? Did I like, you know, the, the people? He goes there as an active participant. He says, I've taken my whole self, my hands, my lips, my mind, my eyes, all into the presence of God. And if you wanna find God, there's almost a rule given to us here that the way you find God is to seek him. It's actually to pursue God. And maybe the reason why so many of us feel so numb and bored in our own Christian life is because truth be told, we stopped seeking and pursuing God a long time ago. And maybe some of us never even began that journey. 
But here David is saying, look, I am seeking God when I go into the corporate gathering. I'm, when I go into the sanctuary, I bring my full self so that there I might encounter God. But he doesn't only seek God in the sanctuary. He also talks about being satisfied with God, seeking God when he's alone and in the quiet and in contemplation on his bed. Look at what he says in verse five. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When? When is, is David being satisfied and enriched? When is David singing to God with joyful lips? He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, it's almost certainly the case that the, the only place where the king might find solitude and solace is in his bed at night, in the middle of the night, when all of the kingdom responsibilities had shut down and there were no expectations on him and he could quiet his heart and he could quiet his mind and there he could fix his thoughts on God and on his word and meditating and thinking about God. And he says, there in my quiet, in my contemplation, in my solitude, I met God and God met me and I found enrichment. And so David met God both in the sanctuary as well as in the home, both with the community of faith as well as in solitude and in quiet. And it's interesting, you know, when you look throughout church history, uh, there's these two traditions when it comes to meeting God. On the one hand, uh, there's a liturgical tradition that says the space where we meet God is in the ritual. It's in the regular rhythms of going together with the people of God and saying the prayers and singing the songs and hearing God's word and receiving word and sacrament. And it's there that God meets us in, in our corporate gatherings. And even in modern worship experiences, places like Hillsong, you know, there's this great confidence that when I go to the gathered community and when I sing my heart in worship and I lift my hands, there God meets me and I can meet God. And then on the other hand, there's always been this pietistic tradition that says, no, that the space where you are most likely to meet God is alone and in quiet and in solitude and in contemplation. But David tells us here that it's both in your quiet time as well as in the community. It's both in solitude as well as at church when you bring your full self when you bring your heart and your hands and your lips and your mind ready to engage and to take notes and to write and to sing and to participate and to seek and to actually look for God, it's there that you will find him. It was A.W. Tozer who said that the person who would truly know God must give time to him. If you wanna meet God, if you wanna break out of your boredom and your cynicism and your unbelief, you need to keep seeking and keep asking and keep knocking. The way to receive from God is to ask and to seek and to knock. And there God meets us as we continue to bring our full self to God. You know, I think oftentimes people complain that God is, is, is feeling so distant and God doesn't feel real. But the, 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 the problem may be that you're just not seeking God. I mean, I would have never gotten married to the most incredible woman in the world that has so enriched and, and, and tra dramatically transformed and changed my life had I sat back and remained passive. 
Have I simp- had I simply waited and thought, well, maybe it'll work out and maybe it can and, and just sat there and, and consumed and sought for, I had to pursue. And so too, David doesn't sit passively. Instead, he actively pursues God and he pursues God in the sanctuary and he pursues God on, on his own and he pursues God, no doubt, in the night and no doubt in the day and, and no doubt uh, at home as well as out in you know, the, the mountains and going for walks. There he, he sought God and he pursued God. And so number one, David recognizes his deep thirst for God, do you? Do you recognize that deep within you, at a fundamental level in your heart and in your soul, there is space that only God can ultimately meet? And have you stepped out in response to that deep hunger and longing? And have you begun to make time for God and pursue God and bring your full self to God, looking for him and longing for him? This is David in this text. But finally, I want you to see that after, we, we, after David recognizes this deep thirst and after he begins this active pursuit, thirdly, I want you to see that ultimately David's thirst is satiated in the infinite and the eternal love of God. Look at what it says back in verse I want you to see where his love, where his thirst for God is ultimately quenched. And he says this. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You know, when David here speaks about God's loving kindness that is better than life, the word he uses in Hebrew for loving kindness is the word uh, chesed. And it's the, it's the Hebrew word that it kind of has a broad range in which it can be translated. Uh, oftentimes it can be translated as God's fidelity to help and rescue his people. And very often when uh, throughout the Psalms, as this term is used again and again and again, uh, when the psalmist speaks about the hesed of God, often he speaks about how God has faithfully helped him, what God has done for him, what God has given to him. But it's interesting because in this Psalm, David doesn't give God thanks for what God is going to do for him out of his hesed. Instead, what what, what David says is he said, God, your loving kindness is an end in and of itself. In other words, God, I'm not simply interested in what you will give me. It's not simply your gifts that will satiate my deepest longings. God, that, the only thing that will ultimately satisfy this craving in my soul, as uh, Pascal said, this, this abyss within my heart is your infinite and eternal self. You know, of course, it's appropriate for us to give God thanks and praise for what he has done. There's that Psalm 104 where it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then he goes off this litany of things. He forgives my sins. He heals our diseases. He redeems our soul. He crowns us with glory. He satisfies us with goodness. He pours out all of these gifts. But listen, the greatest gift that God gives to his people is the gift of God's own self. And David says, it is this 
gift, your very self, that for me has become better than life. You know, one of the commentaries that I was reading points out that he says, you know, it, it is crazy because he says, God has said he's usually delivering the life of one of the children of Israel from some tragedy, from some threat, from some danger. And that's where his loving kindness is revealed. But here David says, even if you don't give me anything, God, even if my life is taken from me, God, you are enough. You ultimately are what I need. You know, in the patristic era, era of the church, where the church was often under threat of persecution and many times Christians were being ripped out of homes and they were being thrown to lions and they were burned and they, they, were, they were martyred for their faith. This was one of the verses that gave them the most confidence in the face of those who threatened to take their life, where they could confidently assert, God, your loving kindness is better than life itself. You know, this week as I was reading this text, I was remembering a song written by a Christian artist named Audrey Assad, who wrote this beautiful song called Even Unto Death. And as she tells the story, she wrote this song in 2015, right after 20 Egyptian Christians and one African Christian had been taken by ISIS and beheaded for their faith in Jesus. And she describes watching with tears in her eyes, these young men who by all accounts were incredibly devout and just loved Jesus were told to kneel and before a camera, they were beheaded. And she said that before they were martyred, she watched some of them calmly just start to mutter something. And she said in her imagination, she was imagining what they were speaking and then out of that imagination, she wrote this song that began like this. She imagined these men who were dying, who ultimately said, God, your love is better than life. Jesus, the very thought of you, it fills my heart with love. Jesus, you burn like wildfire and I am overcome. You're the lover of my soul, even unto death. And with my every breath, I will love you. And here David says, it is this faithful love of God that for him was better than life. It was God's infinite sea of love that ultimately quenched his deepest thirst. And we as followers of Jesus now know that that infinite and eternal love came to its fullest expression when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he gave his life even unto death because God himself was thirsting and hungering for you. And God was pursuing and seeking after you. You know, long before we ever began any kind of search and hunger for God, God was hungry, he was thirsting, he was seeking after you. And in his love, this eternal self-giving love took on flesh in Jesus. And it is when we enter into this relationship with Jesus where God opens up himself to us and he says, come to me, that our ultimate thirst in our hearts can begun to be quenched in God. And so may you, may I, may we keep going back to God again and again, pursuing God, seeking after God so that we might find his love be that which quenches the deep 
longing in our souls. At this time, I want to invite our band to come up. You know, there was a, an author that I remember reading when I was a young Christian whose name was A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this book called The Pursuit of God. And in this book, The Pursuit of God, he has this prayer, and I want to use the words of this prayer and just read them over us as we conclude our service this morning. And just ask that God would, would use these words to continue to work in our hearts and draw us closer into a relationship with himself. And so I wanna invite you just to pause and just quiet your own heart and soul before God. Maybe just reflect on where you're at relative to your own thirsts and hungers. Maybe recognize a restlessness that exists within your own soul. You can't seem to get out from under. And just pause and consider in the quiet of your heart and in your home. whether it may be that it is God in his infinite love, his great sea of being and beauty that ultimately is the only thing that can still that restlessness in you. And now let me pray these words over us. Oh God, we have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We are painfully conscious of our need for more grace. We are ashamed of our lack of desire. Oh God, triune God, we want to know you. We long to be filled with longing. We thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show us your glory, we pray so that we may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within us. Say to our souls, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. And then give us grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where we have wandered for so long. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your son, who long before we sought you, sought after us and pursued our healing and our redemption and our reconciliation. Amen.